Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. I'm Pastor Michael Branch. Our mission is to rightly divide the Word of God to proclaim the true gospel, knowing that our hope lies in the power of that gospel to transform individuals, families, and local churches so that they might do the same in love, proclaim the truth in this present evil age. So as we begin, we pray, Lord, sanctify us in truth. Your Word is truth. I have to admit that I, uh, I kind of, I kind of struggle because there's so much involved with this. Like I have to, I feel like I have to lay a foundation before we actually get into like the end time stuff. So we actually had to go backwards in order to go forward. And so we're kind of, I'm going to finish up today with some of the stuff uh, that has to do with laying that foundation before we can turn our attention to. Uh, what the Bible tells us uh, in prophetic nature, what the Bible tells us is going to unfold in the future, all right? So um, so that's really what I'm going to try to do today is finish up telling you about kind of these foundational truths that so you'll understand exactly what lies ahead. And uh, and so the best way I know how to do that is to kind of unfold it in, in almost like um, a theater setting. So you've got your stage, You've got your cast of characters, and you've got the narrative, kind of the plot of the story, and that's what I'm going to do today. Um, and I'm just going to kind of review some of the stuff I talked about last week, and and then we're going to go into kind of introducing a new character or a new cast of characters that kind of changed everything and changed the whole course of, of what God was doing on the earth. So um, first of all, this stage is the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. So you look at Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. That was the stage in which he was uh, setting forth all of uh, uh, God's work within created time and space. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the stage upon which all of Scripture is going to unfold from Genesis to Revelation and then the eternal state beyond the end when, when time is no more. Uh, what you have to remember is that there are two dimensions on the same timeline, okay, or even, or even beyond time. Like I said, when we come to the end of time, you have to look at time as a, as a metric of just really we measure it by decay or we measure it by the revolution of the sun and the constellations and all of that. But time itself, there's a, there's a point in the future when time will cease to exist and we will just exist with God in, in eternity future. And that's really hard to kind of wrap your brain around because we won't measure time anymore, right? We won't look at the clock and, or we won't look at the calendar. It's going to be completely different. So there are two dimensions unfolding on the same timeline in the same time and space. But what's confusing about it is that one is physical, the things we, we see, taste, touch, and smell, and the other is spiritual. It's the unseen, the seen and the unseen. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Colossians 1, 16, it says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. So we so often, because it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth, it draws our attention then immediately to the earth. We just forget about the heavens and what happened in the heavens. But what you have to understand is what was going on in the earth was mirroring the things that he was already creating or had created in the heavens, okay? So it says, for by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible 
and invisible. And then he mentions this, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. All things have been created through him and for him. This includes the thrones, the dominions, the rulers, the authorities. These were all beings, okay? These spiritual beings and these human beings and the beasts of the earth. Um, Second, the caste. And that brings up the caste is the spiritual beings and these earthly beings uh, that God populated both the heavens and the earth with a myriad of created beings, both spiritual in nature for the heavens and, of course, earthly in nature for the earth and for the physical realm. All right. Now, let's talk about the cast of characters. First and foremost is always God, Elohim, Yahweh, the Elohim of Elohim, the creator of all things. He transcends time. He is triune in nature, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, okay? There's, there's a character in the Old Testament that, that you have to take note of, and he's often called the angel of the Lord. We see him wrestling with Jacob. We see him uh, appearing to Abram and Sarai and telling them that they're going to have a child. Now, what I truly believe this angel of the Lord is is Jesus himself, the word made flesh before he was born as a baby. So he came as the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord, but it was God himself. It was, it was Christ before he became Jesus in this spiritual being form. If you remember, we talked recently in depth about the transfiguration, how when Christ was here, this was no small thing that took place. He was illuminated like in a lantern. When you turn that lantern on and the gas fills up and it it just gets so bright and then all you can see is little spots for the next few minutes because the light was so bright. That's essentially what happened at the transfiguration. Jesus himself in man's flesh uh, allowed those three disciples to see his godly nature and he was transfigured into his glorious form, and we see him at that point in his glorious form. So it's important to realize as you're reading through the Old Testament, uh, especially early on, there's this character, the angel of the Lord, and that is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, okay? Now, I cannot stress to you enough how important it is to understand the otherness of God, that, that you cannot humanize God. You cannot treat God as if he is a man because God is so far transcending beyond your thoughts and your ways and your ability to understand. God is infinite in all his ways. He's glorious. He, is, uh, he, is, um, he has always been. He, there's never been a beginning to God. And these are the things that we have to try to wrap our brain around. You just need to understand that when we're talking about Elohim, there's the Elohim of Elohims, and he is, has created all things. All things come by him and through him and for him and to him, Scripture says. It all encompasses God for the glory of God. Do you understand? So don't make the mistake of humanizing God, and we do it often, because, uh, you know, the Bible sometimes uses these phrases for us to try to understand in human terms what God is doing. But that doesn't actually mean that God regretted it or God repented. It's trying to communicate it in a way that you as a human being can fathom what God was, was doing. Okay? So, we had God, and again, there is no being, not, not the Satan, no being that even comes close to, 
to God in his omniscience, in his omnipresence, in his uh, being all-powerful, okay? So just set him infinitely above anything else. And the next thing on the list is Elohim. And these spiritual beings were created to share in God's power. So he created these spiritual beings in the heavenlies to share power with in the same way that he created mankind on earth and gave Adam dominion over the earth. He also, and we see this in scripture, and I mentioned a few of those uh, cases last week in the book of Job and dealing with uh, the wicked king Ahab. So you'll see, you'll see those Elohim, those created spiritual beings. But there are different types of Elohim, and the Bible tells us there are thrones, dominions, rulers, and author- authorities. So there is a hierarchy uh, of organization set up within these beings, okay? And as far as we can derive from Scripture, um, these beings were organized or situated based upon their purpose— in the kingdom of God or in God's creation. And so the first created spiritual being that I want to discuss today, of course, is uh, was the pinnacle of all of his spiritual beings, created beings, and he would become known as the Satan or the adversary or the accuser of the brethren. Uh, and, and Ezekiel chapter 20 or 28, verses 12 through 13, Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 13, it speaks of this being before his fall. It says, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, which is very close to what the Bible says in Genesis about the, the now the serpent was more crafty. That word comes very close to having the same meaning as wisdom. So there's actual evidence that points to the fact that when the serpent was in the garden and tempted Adam and Eve, that that too was his rebellion. That was his fall and Adam's fall simultaneously, so that he hadn't fallen before that. He was perfect before that. As we see, Scripture tells us here, you, were perf- uh, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Verse 13, you are in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering. So it tells us in, in other scriptures that these precious stones were set in sockets of gold, as if he had golden armor and these stones just like he was bedazzled, okay? He had these, these incredibly beautiful stones that were set in sockets in gold. And, and his purpose, um, his positioning, uh, we see in Ezekiel 28, 14, it says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. So it tells us what he was. You are the anointed cherub who covers. He was, the word anointed means chosen. You are the chosen spiritual being. He was not an angel. We need to understand that. All of my life, I believed that Satan was a fallen angel. Satan was a cherub. He was a type of spiritual being that actually was higher in the hierarchy than regular angels, okay? It says he was a cherub, but not just any cherub. He was a chosen cherub and his position was to cover. So it's likely that the Satan was a one of a kind created spiritual being and there was nothing else created like him. Okay. Um, but the Bible also describes him as not just a cherub, but also a seraph, which was another spiritual being. And I want to look at those verses real quick. Um, 
The cherubs are very interesting beings. These are not the fat little Cupid babies with the bow and arrow and wings that you see, and everybody calls those little cherubs like baby angels. That is not a cherub, but cherub is much different than that. In Ezekiel chapter 10, Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 14, listen to the description of this uh, being, this cherub. Verse 14, and each one had four faces. The face was the face of a cherub. The second face was the face of a man, and the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. So, so these spiritual beings reflected beasts that were created in the earthly realm, okay? So there was this spiritual reality in which they were created, and, and a lot of people will look at this and say, oh, this represents, this is a spiritual representation of something on earth. That's not how this works. There were two realities, and God created these, and what these represent, if anything on earth, is that they were created in reality. They represent all of creation, all the beasts of earth. So God took this as a kind of a model and then created separate beasts on the earth. Does that make sense to you guys? So, so it's interesting, though. He says the face of a cherub, the face of a man, the third face was a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. Now understand that those are also like would be considered the king of each kind of beast. So the eagle with the birds and the lion with the, you know, like the, uh, the beast, the king of the beasts. And, uh, and then that, but there's that interesting word cherub again that it mentions. Well, if you look in Ezekiel chapter one, he sees these same creatures again uh, by the river Shabar. And here's what it says. They are described as having once again, various faces, okay? So so like four different faces. Only this time there's a difference in this scripture and the and the description before, and I'm going to draw a comparison so we understand what it meant when it says cherub, and this draws clarity because you harmonize scripture. They don't contradict, they harmonize, okay? So um the one it was described as a man, a lion, an eagle, and a bull or an ox, a horned, like a cow type creature, okay? So the cherub and the bull are interchangeable in these scriptures. And the Bible describes them as having feet like calves hooves. And in their midst were what looked to be like burning coals of fire. Now, this is interesting because in a later description of the Satan, it talks about how he fell and he used to walk among the stones of fire. It's interesting here how these creatures are described as walking among burning coals of fire, right? So we're beginning to draw these, um, these um, connections, connecting the dots between these scriptures and realizing that, that the Satan himself was a very different being, that he had was very similar to these cherubs, but he was also very similar to... Um, to these other things called seraphim. Now in Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah chapter six, verses one and two, Isaiah has a vision of the throne room of heaven and he too sees these uh, beasts and he describes them as seraphim. And, and the I am on the end of the word, they're seraphs, but then you put I am on the end and it just means plural. It means there were, ma- there were more than one, okay? So they were seraph but there were more than one, so they were seraphim. They were cherubs, but there was more than one, so they were cherubim. You get that? All right, so here it says, verse one, Isaiah six, one and two. 
In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Verse 2, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. So we also see that the Bible describes the Satan as the anointed cherub who covers. And perhaps this cherub was one like these who covered their eyes and covered their feet and flew. Do you understand? He covered something, but also reflected the glory of God. Now, if you were to mix the two, seraphs and cherubs, uh, so a cow-like creature or an ox mixed with a serpent, because we see these, that word seraph just means serpent. So these were serpents in the throne room of God with six wings, okay? That's how they were described. Have you ever heard of that before? So, so now we see this comparison then drawn to the Garden of Eden where the Satan was immediately described as a serpent, okay? And then we draw a, comp a comparison to Jesus when he said that old serpent, the devil. So he was described as a serpent. So if you mix a bull and a serpent, so it's like a, a reptile type creature, but it has like hooves like a bull and, and a head like a bull, then would you not describe that as a type of dragon? the way Jesus described him, that old serpent or the dragon in Revelation, okay? Now, a lot of this is, we're just kind of speculating a little bit, okay? But we're drawing uh, this these ideas out of Scripture itself, and none of this is essential in your doctrine to believe. So, so what I challenge you to do is dig in Scripture yourself and come to your conclusion of what you believe about this being. But what we don't need to do is just by cultural definitions of what the Satan was, that he was just a fallen angel that rebelled against God. He was a spiritual being of some kind of great uh, majesty and glory, perfection, the Bible tells us, okay? Um, all right, so my, my thinking is that there were many more created spiritual beings than what we even know about in Scripture, that when we get... Uh, a glimpse of this this spiritual world, our mind will be blown with the 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 myriad of created beings. I believe that we will see. Okay, and those beings were part of creation in the very beginning, in the heavens and the earth. Uh, now, these spiritual beings, the Bible also seems to indicate that they can come and go um, between the heavens and the earth before the fall. Okay, but that after the fall, when the, this twin rebellion took place in the garden, uh, spiritual and physical beings were both cast out of the garden. And of course, God puts two cherubim at the gate of the garden to keep out anything fallen out of the garden. And, and that those beings always, every time we see them, those cherubim, every time we see them, they are guarding the barrier or the boundaries between the earthly and the heavenly, okay? All right, so um, humans at this time no longer had access to God's presence the way they once did, and God's interaction with fallen beings was now limited only to God's design. He would interact with man when, when he felt like it, but there was no, long this, no longer this open dialogue as we read often about Adam and Eve 
uh, walking and talking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. That intimacy with the Creator was gone, and there was a whole new relationship that had taken place. Um, These spiritual beings were also cast out of God's presence, um, and what God had once called good, they were now fallen. They were rebels, okay, and they were broken by sin. And, of course, you have these fallen earthly beings in the seen physical dimension, and you have fallen spiritual beings in the unseen dimension, and both now wreaking havoc upon the earth, upon God's creation for centuries. And we see this, how this unfolds. Um, Of course, at that point, heaven and earth, the heavens and the earth were separated, and God was no longer dwelling with men because of the fall. So remember, the whole purpose is heaven and earth, okay? And we're going to finish up with the cast for now with this one last, um, I want to call them people group that was part of the cast, and we're going to call them the nations, the nations. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament. Um, the nations were these, uh, were these people groups that were, that were cast away from Babel, and the Bible says that God separated them and God confused their languages. And Moses himself actually said that when God spread out these people groups, he actually spread out the spiritual rebels with them. He cast them out. So each city or each people group had this fallen spiritual being with them. Okay, and we're going to read some scripture uh, to back that up as well. So now what's the narrative? What's the plot behind all of this? Well, God's purpose, this is so important to understand. God's purpose is to dwell among men for eternity, for heaven and earth to collide for eternity. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. When Christ came here, he was the tabernacle of God dwelling among men, okay? So first, again, God created this place And I'm going to back up the narrative, that heaven and earth colliding. That's the whole purpose. God created a place where the two uh, dimensions, the physical and the spiritual, collide. And that place was called Eden. And, And it says in Ezekiel, it was the holy mountain of God. So Eden was a mountain. It, it, it was, uh, uh, considered to be where heaven and earth, um, God, these spiritual beings and human beings, could be together. And the gospel of Eden, remember, was to spread, to be fruitful and multiply and spread that goodness all over the globe, to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth and replenish it. That's what I call the gospel of Eden. And you see this same theme when Noah got off the ark, you see it in the gospel. Go ye therefore, baptizing all nations, preaching the gospel, right? You see it later on, or you see it when we're talking about the nation of Israel, their calling, and we're going to get into that as well. Um, But again, the spiritual and the physical, both together in this garden called Eden. All right? Um, So the purpose again, God and man dwelling together, and the the mission once again was spreading Eden or spreading goodness or spreading this this perfection of Eden, uh, almost perfection of Eden over the whole earth, okay? So what would be the end result then of God dwelling with mankind for eternity as the heavens and earth dwell together, they bring him glory. That would be, that would be the ultimate goal is 
And we see that because what do we see in Revelation? What's the one of the very last things it tells us happens? It says the new Jerusalem, the city of God, descends down to the earth and, and it hovers above the earth or it rests on the earth, however God wants to do that. I'm not asking questions. I just want to be there, right? I just want to see it. So we see this new Jerusalem. We see the new heavens and the new earth. So the, the narrative throughout scripture never changes. It's always God's intention to dwell among men, not in some spiritual wispy floaty around in, in the clouds kind of reality. No, God says the heavens and the earth. The earth, once God rejuvenates it, it's going to be for eternity. All right, so uh, how was this affected, this narrative? How was it affected after the twin rebellion or the fall? Well, first of all, God, from then on, God chose when, where, and how he would interact with these fallen beings and allow them to interact with him, okay? So we see this separation, but again, God would choose how he was going to interact with mankind and these other spiritual beings, always based upon his ultimate plan, what he promises that he will see accomplished. God says, I will accomplish my work. You can count on me. I will be faithful to my word and everything I said that's gonna happen, it's gonna happen, all right? And so God works within the affairs of men and these fallen spiritual beings in order to bring about his ultimate purpose. God instituted the nations after the birth of Babylon, as I said, by spreading them across the land, giving them different languages, all right? And then, as I said before, I'm just reviewing here. I want this to get in your brain because you've heard all kinds of stuff before now. I really wanna, want you to, to, to latch onto this. He forced the people to spread and he forced these spiritual forces, these fallen spiritual beings to spread out as well. So these fallen spiritual beings now, after the fall, in a vengeful manner, they would manipulate mankind to gain power and authority through them. So these fallen beings, they don't really have rulership or authority unless there's a, there's a man that gives them power. There's a man that, that serves them. So they manipulate and they try to pull the strings, right? And, and they try to get what they want by living vicariously through these human leaders and rulers and all, and all of that. And that's why scripture always shows us that when, when, uh, a king or a ruler is being addressed, if it's a wicked king or a wicked ruler, then behind that wicked ruler, it almost switches immediately from the king of Tyre all of a sudden to talking about uh, the Satan, the fallen being behind that, that ruler, okay? And the way this resulted in depravity, the way they manipulate mankind is, and by the way, we don't need a lot of help. We don't need a lot of, a lot of push to do uh, wrong because we have a sinful nature. We have a fallen fleshly nature that is ready to gobble up any, any little crumb that's thrown out there. And, and what it results in is further depravity, sexual sin, war and bloodshed, using one another in the form of slavery. All of these things are the opposite of what God intended the Garden of Eden to be. Do you understand? So everything that we see in fallen man and these fallen spiritual beings are the opposite of what God intended in the garden and the opposite of what the new heaven and the new earth will be like, okay? When it will be a kingdom of righteousness forever and ever. All right, so what you have to understand is the 
is the enemy attacks the purpose of God in mankind. So God is planning to accomplish his purpose and will do it, but the whole time the enemy is trying to usurp or turn things on its head or undermine or demean God's original purpose for his creation. And he does it in a very wrathful, vengeful manner, Scripture tells us. So, um, these, these rulers were spread out among these kingdoms of men. So how would it affect man? Well, mankind would try in their fallenness to achieve heaven on earth. And the way we try to do that is through our senses, through gaining the things, the Bible calls it the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. If, if we've got that, if we've got the right husband or wife, if we drive the right car, if we have the, the right size house, if people can look at us and they're like, wow, check them out. They've, they've really got it made, right? Then those are the things that often drive mankind. And it's not, it's not at all unlike Eve in the garden when she saw that, that fruit. And the Bible says she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes it was pleasant or good for food and desirable to make one wise. Well, that's what we do. If it looks good, if it tastes good, if it's desirable to give us knowledge or make us wise or, or give us a leg up on our human competition, buddy, we go after it, don't we? That's our nature. That is our human nature. So um, again, we lie, cheat, steal, murder. We break all the commandments, right? We break all the things in order to get what we want. That is our default mechanism as a fallen human being. And it's the nature of Christ that changes us. It's the nature of God that transforms us. Okay. Uh, and of course, these fallen principalities and powers, they just oblige us those desires, any opportunity uh, they get. I don't ever like hearing people say the devil made me do it because the devil doesn't make you do anything. You make a choice. The, the devil can, or the, the enemy can tempt you, but you're the one who makes a decision to step into that big pile of steaming sin, okay? Thought I was gonna say something else, didn't you? All right, we see these attempts over and over in scripture. So the nations themselves, so when you have humans together, um, one human together, that has a sinful nature. Then you get a whole bunch of humans together at once, and it compounds the problem. Uh, someone asked me recently, how come when you look at the electoral map, I'm not going to go too far with this, but, I, but I'll let you do your own research. How come you look at the electoral map, and it seems like all of the highly densely populated cities are voting the opposite of all the rural areas out in the country? I'll just let y'all look at electoral map and, and make that decision on your own. But let me just tell you, when you stack people on top of people, they begin to adopt a humanist mentality. That They begin to adopt the mentality of the city of Babel, of Babylon. And that's why we see wickedness are more, is more rampant in cities than we see out in rural areas where life is a little more quiet, right? Out on green acres. All right, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, um, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9, it says the nations themselves were manipulated by these fallen spiritual forces behind the authorities of men. Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you when the Most High Yahweh allotted the nations 
and set the divisions for the sons of humanity. He fixed the territories of peoples. Those are the Gentile nations. They'll be known as the Gentiles later. Listen to what he says here next. According to the number of the sons of God or Elohim. So he actually separated the nations or peoples based upon the number of these beings. And, they, and he spread them out, and each being had a people group under them. Do you understand? This is important to understand. It sounds a little weird, but it's telling us right here. So I want you to keep this passage in mind, that the Most High Yahweh allotted the nations and set the divisions of the sons of humanity. So there you see human beings. And then he says he allotted them and separated them and fixed the territories of the people according to the number of the sons of God or the Elohim, all right? But Yahweh's, it says, but Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is his own allotment. We're gonna get there in a minute, so keep that in mind. We see in Daniel 10, these spiritual forces actually interacting with one another and it is affecting the affairs of men. But I want you to see how it follows up and actually supports what we just read in uh, in the uh book of Deuteronomy here. So Daniel chapter 10, we're going to look at 11 through 13 and 20 through 21. Daniel 10, 11 through 13 and 20 through 21. This angelic being visits Daniel and he said to me, oh, Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words I'm about to tell you and stand upright for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. So Daniel, of course, is, is acting you know, kind of fearful in, in the presence of this angelic being, which you would as well, I would imagine. Verse 12, then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. So from the first day that Daniel prayed, his words were heard. And I have come in response to your words. So this angelic being came in answer to Daniel's prayer. Verse 13, but... The prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, so, so he's caught in this stalemate. He can't go anywhere because the prince, this fallen being, is keeping him away from answering Daniel's prayer. Okay? And then it says, Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, this is the archangel, who was, of course, higher in the hierarchy of 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 spiritual beings, this prince came to help me for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. So in other words, he was trapped with these, with this prince and these kings of Persia until Michael the archangel came to help release him so that he could finish what he was sent to do. Now, isn't that pretty incredible to think about? Verse 20, then he said, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against, again, the prince of Persia. So I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. So again, they are segmenting these beings based upon the territories or the, the, the cities upon which these dominions or rulers are given authority over. All right? So this message given to Daniel seems to in, indicate that the empires of our world, and we don't know, it could be a continent, and then so there's a ruler over the continent, and then a ruler over each each uh, nation or over each um, province or state 
or whatever, and then one over every city. Like we, we don't know exactly, but, but we, we can at least think in those terms as we see scripture tells us here that they were spread out and allotted to each of these people groups. And then it actually calls them their name. They're not given a proper name. They're just called, this is the fallen being over Persia. And this is the fallen being over Greece. All right. And then we see later the one over Tyre and the one over Babylon. So these beings are over these different areas. So every nation after the fall of Babel or ancient Babylon, and that's important to remember because in Revelation it talks a lot about basically new Babylon or this Babylon being uh, reanimated or reinvigorated and and there's this new uh, world power on the scene. Every single one of these cities and and towns and people groups were under the influence of, of these fallen beings, okay? And they were only wicked nations at this time. This is really important to understand. There were only wicked nations on earth at this time. They were influenced and um, they were influenced by these fallen spiritual beings. All right? Now, remember what it said before, that he fixed the territories of people according to the numbers of Elohim. But Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is his own allotment. So here we see at this point, a new group of people joins the cast, okay? And this is so exciting. God had a plan to redeem mankind and using a special people, a special nation, he would bring heaven to earth once again. And that nation he would form is called Israel, Israel. And from this point on, mankind in scripture is split into two separate people groups, the nation of Israel and the Gentile nations, the nation of Israel and the Gentile nations. The Gentile nations are led by the, uh, these fallen spiritual beings that seem to um, manipulate and, and, if you will, pull the strings uh, on the men who are in power. But God was saying, I will create a nation for my own possession, for my own allotment. They will be my people and I will be their God and they won't even have a king. I'm going to be their king. They're just going to give, uh, pay me honor and glory as their God, okay? And if the Gentiles wish to be saved during that time, the Bible says they would have to break from their wicked nation and somehow bless the nation of Israel. Remember what God says. He promised to restore the earth and bless all Gentile nations through the nation of Israel. And this is actually known later on as the gospel of the kingdom. Okay? The gospel of the kingdom. Through the, old, uh, through the entire Old Testament, as well as the four gospels and midway through the book of Acts, the gospel of the kingdom is being preached. It is this gospel that Israel... Through Israel, redemption would come and Israel would be set up as a kingdom on earth and all nations would flow to Israel because that is where God himself would be, would be the tabernacle God among men, okay? And we're going to talk much more about this, but it's really important to understand. Remember that Jesus had yet to be... Has it ever been confusing to you when you read that Jesus was preaching the gospel, but you knew he hadn't died and resurrected yet? It's like, well, wait, what gospel was he preaching? Well, that's the gospel that Paul called the gospel of grace. But before the gospel of grace, 
was the gospel of the kingdom. And that's what John the Baptist was preaching. And that's what Jesus was preaching. And that's what he told his disciples to preach. And we're going to get into all of that. So I hope you'll still keep showing up as we work our way through this. Okay. So while the fallen spiritual beings would still manipulate the people of Israel and lead the people of Israel astray, Israel would fail over and over again, and this is their cycle. This has always been their cycle. In worship of idols and in their disobedience, they were a people for God's own possession, as it said, his portion and his covenant with Abraham did not hinge on their ability to keep the covenant. It was all about God and his faithfulness to keep the covenant, okay? God would be faithful and he would uphold both ends of the covenant that he struck with Abraham. So let's look at this moment that God called Abram. That's in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord God said to Abram, go forth from your country. So he's calling him out of this wicked Gentile nation, all right, that's ruled by these fallen Elohim. And from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so this is when God made an everlasting covenant with Israel. It's the Abrahamic covenant. Now he makes other other covenants later on. You have the Mosaic covenant, which is based on the law, and it's a conditional covenant. If you keep the law, I will bless you in this way. But it did not negate the Abrahamic covenant. It's still in effect because God called it an everlasting covenant. Psalm 105, 8 through 11. Psalm 105, 8 through 11. Listen what it says here. He has remembered his covenant forever. Someone tell me how long's forever? Yeah, forever, right? Pretty, pretty simple, right? He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, it's very specific, and his oath to Isaac, saying it's generational, it passed down to Isaac, passed down to Jacob, right? Passed down to Joseph, All it kept going. To Israel, uh, uh, um, Verse 10, then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant. It never ends. Everlasting, the last time I checked, means that it lasts forever, right? Unless it's an everlasting gobstopper, and those are quite disappointing. Verse 11, uh, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. So he's saying this. There is a promise that God made to Abraham and his descendants. It's everlasting. It involves uh, the nation of Israel. It involves blessing. It involves the seed. So the seed of Abraham, the blessing, all right? And then, of course, um, well, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20. Uh, we're going to look at verse 24 and verse 26. Leviticus 20, 24 and 26. Here's verse 24. Hence, I've said to you, you are to possess their land and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. 
So he's saying, I've called you out to be a new nation, a different type of nation from all the other nations. Verse 26, thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Do you understand the importance of the nation of Israel? God's covenants with Israel are a theological arena in which many people get confused because a lot of believers today believe that Israel, that God is done with Israel and that they're a thing of the past and they rejected God. And so it's over. They blew it. He's done with them. And now the church replaces Israel. That is not proper theology. That theology will get you into a lot of trouble when it comes to understanding scripture as a whole. All right. So remember the Abrahamic covenant was a promise. It was unconditional and everlasting. And it was three things, seed, land, and blessing. So there was the seed of Abraham, the descendants, the land, the promised land that they would receive, and the blessing to all nations. All nations would flow to Israel because that is where God himself will sit or be throned as the tabernacle of God with men. And then, of course, you have the Mosaic covenant. It was the law. It was conditional. There are consequences to breaking it, um, mostly in the form of captivity, being taken into captivity, and ultimately being cut off. You have to understand that all throughout Scripture, Israel has been likened to a tree or a bush, okay? And uh, sometimes a fig tree, sometimes just a tree, sometimes a bush that's burning but is not consumed. God was showing Moses, the nation of Israel, embodied in that burning bush. He's saying, your people will be a bush, this tree that is consumed, but it will not, or that is on fire, but it will not be consumed by the fire. Interestingly, Jacob, his name was changed to Israel after he wrestled with God. And the name Israel means he who wrestles with God and survives. So Israel is all about this struggle, the fire, the trial, the, the persecution, the, the uh, um, tribulation, okay? But they will not be consumed no matter what. And out of all the nations in all of history, there's only been one nation that has actually ceased to exist and then has come back to the forefront of the nations and retained their traditions and their languages and their religion and all of that stuff, and that is the nation of Israel. After almost 2,000 years of ceasing to exist and being scattered across the globe, Israel became a nation again. It's never happened before. We're going to talk a lot about that in coming weeks. Um, the Bible says that he will raise them up again to be a blessing to all nations, okay? And he also says to these fallen beings that their days are numbered. And even thus Satan himself, um, the Bible says there's coming a period of time in which there will be peace on earth. Now, if you get the first coming mixed up with the second coming of Christ, then you're gonna be confused because these spiritual beings are still doing their thing, aren't they? We still have to deal with aging bodies. We still have to deal with death and sorrow and pain. We still have to deal with warfare and, and uh, dissension and brokenness in the world. So Christ came and he dealt with the matter of sin and the power of sin and the consequences of sin. But when he comes back, he's going to deal with it once and for all. But he's got a few things he's got to do first, okay? And that's why things weren't fully redeemed all at once, okay? 
I want you to turn to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14. It speaks of this, and then we're going to close here in just a minute. It speaks of this uh, fulfillment coming in the future when these wicked spirits and these wicked human rulers are cast into eternal darkness forever and ever. And God's kingdom will at that, at that time take full possession upon the earth, full reign on the earth. And it, we're going to start in verse 1. And it's basically a, pro, a prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. It says, when the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, remember who Jacob is. Jacob was the first one whose name was changed to Israel. So when it speaks of Jacob, when the Old Testament says the time of Jacob's trouble, what it means is Israel. It's talking about the nation of Israel. It says, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel. He will again choose Israel. Israel's not chosen right now. We are in the time, the age of grace and the age of the mystery, which is the body of Christ. And we're, we're going to discuss all of that in the future as well. But, but when he's talking about this, he's saying there's going to come a time in which God will choose Israel again to be in prominence and settle them in their own land. And then strangers, the Gentiles, we see the same theme, will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. So they're going to want to bless Israel. The, the Gentiles are once again, Israel's going to be seated in their place. Would you say that all the Gentiles of the earth right now want to bless Israel? No, no, they want to destroy them, most of them. So that's understand, it's important to understand the difference, okay? So they, these Gentiles will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord as male servants and female servants, and they will take their captors captive, and they will rule over their oppressors, and it will be in the day of the Lord. He gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and the harsh service in which you've been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against... huh? the king of Babylon. It says that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, the Satan, and say how the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. Verse five, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which used to strike the people in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution. Verse seven, the whole earth is at rest and is quiet, and they break forth into shouts of joy. There's coming a time on this planet where the whole earth will be at peace, and, and it will be such a celebration that all of man will break forth in shouts of joy. Verse 8, even the cypress trees rejoice over your fall, and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no tree cutter has come up against us. So essentially what this is talking about is the end of us having to use the, um, the trees and, and the things on earth that there's coming a time in the future of earth where God will provide all things to mankind again as he did in the Garden of Eden. Adam, Adam wasn't having to uh, work by the sweat of his brow at that time, and that's what this is alluding to. Remember, the end reflects the beginning, only the, the beautiful thing about the end is that there will be no potential for evil ever again. So the garden was perfect in every way except for it was still um, open to the potential of evil uh, taking place. All right. So it says, verse 9, Sheol from beneath, that's the grave, is excited over you. Remember, this is talking about the Satan, okay? The fall of this, this fallen being. 
Uh, so the grave beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead. These are the wicked rulers and kingdoms that they manipulated all this time. All the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we, you have become like us. So there's a period in which they will be able to see these beings that have manipulated them all throughout their reign and through their kingdom. And they're going to look at them and go, you have been brought down low like we are. And then the Bible even says, <coughs> excuse me, the Bible even says that they're going to look at the Satan and say, is this the guy that caused all of this trouble? Is this the guy that wreaked havoc on all of the nations? Verse 11, your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol, the grave. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. Doesn't sound like a restful night's sleep to me, does it? Until that time, the enemy will be working to manipulate every ruler, every world leader, every nation toward its wicked agenda. And that's what I mean when I refer to the mask of the beast. This evil agenda, this wicked agenda of these fallen beings coupling themselves with wicked men and these nations to take the, the earth in an area that has a form of godliness but denies the power of God and essentially driven by humanism. The march toward globalism, the outcry for a world leader to take his position over the global economy, over a global government where all the nations will become one wicked global rule, okay? And the satanic hatred for Israel will be off the charts, and the hatred for the body of Christ will be off the charts until, of course, the body of Christ is taken out of the way. The great strides that will be made in technology and modern medicine, and listen, I want you to understand, I'm not bashing technology and modern medicine. They're a wonderful thing, but... Those things bolster humanity's confidence that in the lie of Babel, which is this, that humanity will ascend to be like the Most High, that we can reach a point in our technology and our ability to prolong the human life to basically immortality that we no longer need God. That's the mask of the beast. That's the lie of Babylon, right? We can be immortal. We can ascend beyond the stars. We can set up colonies on Mars and travel into deep space. That's what they're all talking about now. But in the face of humanity's confidence, though, uh, the wickedness and violence of men will continue to worsen. It will spiral further and further into depravity, as the Bible says, as in the days of Noah. And they will be reminded that they are not God in one way for sure, they will be reminded, man will be reminded how small and, and how little control they actually have when these uncontrollable, unprecedented natural disasters begin to take place. They grow more and more intense, more and more frequent. And Jesus said that there will be men who faint for fear because of these natural disasters that are taking place upon the earth. These are all of the Areas that we will discuss in the coming weeks as we continue to unmask the beast. And um, next week, I'll tell you all about what I call the super sign of the last days. The super sign of the last days. And I've already given you 
a hint today, but we'll, we'll cover it next week. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you were encouraged by the truth of God's Word. If you're in the Tulsa area and are looking for a local church family that teaches God's Word, then join us at 1030 every Sunday morning. Or you can join us live online on our Facebook page or YouTube channel. Until next time, brothers and sisters, as Paul instructed, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, and live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. God bless.